This is the Pro Channel Manager Podcast, episode number six. You're listening to the Pro Channel Manager Podcast, the only podcast in the world that shows you how to run a YouTube channel just like the pros. And here's your host. He's grown multiple YouTube channels by millions of subscribers and billions of views. And even though he speaks funny, we promise you he is speaking English, Tom Martin. Hello, fellow pro channel managers. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with me this fine fortnight. Today, I have an amazing guest, a good friend of mine, someone who I've known for a number of years. And if you've been to any kind of conference in the last few years, you may have been lucky enough to hear him talk about what we're talking about today, which is advanced YouTube thumbnails. You almost certainly, if you've done any kind of search for any how-to type YouTube video, also you've likely found him if you've searched for anything related to how to do something on YouTube, because he also runs the incredible official vidIQ YouTube channel. Yesterday, we're talking to one of the two Robs from vidIQ, Rob Wilson, who I feel is one of the world's leading authorities on amazing YouTube thumbnails. As I mentioned, Rob is a member of team vidIQ, who are today's sponsor. Here's a quick word from them. vidIQ is the secret weapon for every professional YouTube channel manager. Why? Because it has all of the amazing workflow and efficiency tools you need to save you time and effort, but there's more. It also has the most advanced YouTube SEO tools in the world, including an incredible keyword research tool that I use on every single video that I upload. I've been using vidIQ since way back in 2013, and without it, I simply would not have been able to generate the billions of YouTube views that I have. Fact. So if you want to get Ninja and start using the tools that the pros use, check out ProChannelManager.com forward slash vidIQ to get a free 30-day trial of one of their awesome paid plans. That's ProChannelManager.com forward slash V-I-D-I-Q. And you can thank me later. Yep. So you can find out more about vidIQ. You can find out today's incredible Easter egg, which happens at the start of the video. And of course, you can find today's detailed, actionable steps. They'll be laid out in a full article to make sure that you have the best possible thumbnails for your videos and your clients' videos. And you'll be able to find that at prochannelmanager.com forward slash episode six. That's the word episode number six, no dashes, no hyphens. And we are going to roll the interview right now. Welcome to the show, a good pal of mine, uh, Rob Wilson from vidIQ. Your official title is YouTuber in Residence, is that right? It's kind of like an official title, like I had a title before, which I think was Content Strategist. Personally decided I didn't like it, so I thought I'd choose this one instead. I don't know if this has actually been authorized by anyone at vidIQ, but yeah, I refer to myself as a YouTuber in Residence. So it's like uh, Paul Lintz calling himself the governor. Yeah. So, so you are the governor. Well, actually, maybe I'll call myself the governor. But me and you, Rob, have actually known each other before you started at vidIQ. I remember you being on, it must have been on my email list in on some form of one of my old websites. And we had uh, some kind of chat on a video call 
back in the day when you were running your your other YouTube channel, which was uh, Video Games Journal. Almost, Video Gadgets Journal. Ah, so close, so close. Yeah, and uh, we had a, a, a couple of chats about YouTube back in the day then. And I remember working at the BBC and obviously I, I've been a, a beating on the drum of vidIQ for years and years and years and checking out one of their videos and I'm just watching it thinking, I know that voice. I know that distinctive Huddersfield voice. And uh, yeah, it was you. When would have that been? When did you start vidIQ as the kind of in-house YouTuber or content strategist? And how did that, how did that move come about? So the, the story goes as follows, if I can remember it right. Um, I was running my own channel, which obviously was very memorable that you uh, couldn't remember exactly what it was called, the Video Gadgets Journal. Close I, was, I was just doing tech stuff uh, like how to record an iPhone screen or like new tips and tricks on the latest mobile phone. And the, the channel was steadily growing at this point. I decided for some reason that I wanted to give a little back to the creator community, so to speak, even though you wouldn't necessarily recommend jumping topics like that going from, say, mobile phone tech to YouTube growth education. But that's the type of person I was at that stage in my YouTube journey, I guess. Sorry to cut in, but were you a full-time YouTuber at this point or was this a a side gig? It was all still a side hustle. I was just passionate about making videos and I was earning, you know, a couple of hundred dollars from ad revenue. So it was becoming a serious thing to consider. But yeah, it was still 100% amateur at that point. And I think this, so this was, must have been the beginning of 2016. And I, like many creators, had discovered uh, YouTube tools that would help you. One being vidIQ, the other shall not be named. <laughs> they both had tools, which were how to copy tags, I think, because um, tags are still quite important then. And I decided I was going to do a quick tutorial on how to copy tags. And it was a choice between vidIQ and this other tool. And for whatever reason, vidIQs was like a tiny bit better at that point. So I chose vidIQ as a tool I was going to do an educational video on. And I made the video. To this day, I still don't think it's got more than 5,000 views. So it wasn't that successful. But this was kind of one of these sliding door moments whereby I think an hour after the video went live and I tweeted it out and included vidIQ in the, the tweet. The CEO, Rob Sandy of vidIQ, got in touch with me and said, I really like what you did there with our tool. Would you like to do some freelance work? I was like, sure, yeah, that, that sounds good. Um, oh, it's going to be paid as well. And that's amazing. So I've managed to somehow turn my little bit of ad revenue on my channel into something now where I was potentially freelancing for vidIQ. And I remember right at the beginning, one of the discussions we had was Rob said, what's your um, hourly rate? And I had no idea how to price myself. I'd never done anything like this. And I kind of said, uh, $25 an hour, question mark. And he said, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to do you at $45 an hour. So already at that point, there was a really good relationship established that he wasn't going to let me, I guess, not price myself out of the market, but like under undervalue what I was doing. What we would say in London, he's not going to let you mug yourself off. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I guess me being frugal in a Yorkshire, and I thought, yeah, $25 is, you know, that's, that's good pay, is that? Yeah, I'll take that. So I think for the next year, I did some freelance work for vidIQ, like just one video a week, because I was still really into my, my own content. But I always realized that the ad revenue and what I was doing was never going to be enough to do this professionally or go full time. And then Rob 
very graciously said, we, we, we really like the relationship with Bitlip here. We really like what you're doing. Could you work for us full time? He was essentially offering me a job. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Uh, I would love to, but given my unique circumstances of living in a, another country, my visa only allowed me to work for the company that I was working for at the time. But that spurred on the idea of getting like a, it's what's called permanent residency in Canada, which means you have a work visa and you can, you can work for whoever you want. So I went for another year going through this application process and still just doing a little bit of freelance work for vidIQ. So Rob waited all of his time until I got my personal situation in order. And at that time, my channel was still growing and I was at a point now where we're getting up to 100,000 subscribers, starting to earn a bit more money. And I'm thinking, which road do I go down here? Do I, do I maybe um, take the risk and go with my channel, which still has not that much income at the time, but it could potentially be a lot? Or do I go for this steady income with vidIQ, but it's maybe not necessarily what I'm working on? You know, YouTube education, is that really what I want to do long, full time? Um, but I think the, the key moment is when Rob brought me on, uh, started offering me the job, he said, uh, more or less, you would have complete creative freedom and control over the YouTube channel. So that still allows me to make whatever type of content I want. Because I think a key thing for me working at vidIQ was I didn't just want to be, I guess, a spokesperson or somebody who's just saying, use our tools, pay this much. This is what our YouTube channel is all about. Our YouTube channel is still very much community-based where we're helping creators first educate them on their YouTube journey and just mentioning, hey, we've got this tool as well. You might be interested in it. But it's a lot more about the the YouTuber journey as opposed to vidIQ. And... That was, I guess, what made me decide, yep, yeah, I'm going to turn this passion and this hobby into a full-time career and job with vidIQ. And I think that was in 2017. So yeah, October 2017. And ever since then, I've done all of the video content for vidIQ. And where was the channel when you kind of took that plunge full-time and where is it now? Because I know there's been some pretty significant growth. So the channel was about, I think, 80 or 90,000 subscribers. But I'd been the only person who'd done any video content on the vidIQ channel. So we'd already built it up to a significant size. But then when I was able to work on it full time and like do two or three videos a week instead of one, start doing live streams and really pay attention to making thumbnails, which we obviously we're going to talk a lot about and like really making it my channel. I think we surpassed 600,000 subscribers two weeks ago. Well, in the middle of June 2020. So, yeah, I guess that's an increase of half a million subscribers in uh, shared under three years. Not bad at all. Not bad. You mentioned thumbnails and, you know, I would consider myself a YouTube expert generally, but there are certain things where I would stand back and say, you know, this is not my bag. I can't teach you how to do this. One of those things would be like production. I'm not going to teach you how to do like good lighting and choose which lenses is to use and stuff like that. Another one would be like paid advertising. I don't really know much about that. And a third would be thumbnail design. Like I know I can look at a thumbnail and tell you if it's good and I can tell you why it's good and what you need to do to improve it. But if you put me in front of like Photoshop or even like Canva, I'm going to struggle to make something that looks much better than a pig's ear. So I always refer people to the vidIQ channel specifically when they're asking me about how do I make great thumbnails. 
because I know that Rob here and also our good friend Jeremy, when he worked on the channel as well, put so much effort and emphasis on the thumbnails. And that is, it's clear to see in the message that you give on your channel when you give talks at places like VidCon and VidSummit, but also just by looking at your thumbnails on your channel, they are exceptional. They really are like a shining light of how to make a great YouTube thumbnail. So that's why I wanted to get you on, Rob. You gave a great talk at VidCon London, my hometown, my favorite of all the VidCons because it means I can roll out of bed so much later and not get on a plane. Um, can you tell us, before we dive in, what was the title of that talk and what was the title that you told me you really wanted to call the talk? God, I can't remember. You've got, you've got me on the spot here. <laughs> well, I think it? it was like how to improve your oh i remember that right right so uh let's go back a little bit here you mentioned jeremy vest there he jeremy vest was my mentor actually on making thumbnails because before he came in on board to vid iq i was just doing like templates and spending five ten minutes on thumbnails but he really taught me a lot about um many of uh not rules and foundations but what he believes about thumbnails and how important they are uh so i, I owe a lot of my current talent of thumbnail making to him. And so, yeah, he originally started the vidIQ thumbnail uh, talks at VidCon US and his was titled, I think something along the lines of how to increase uh, your views by 900% uh, through thumbnails. But by the time it got to VidCon London on our channel, we'd been able to increase our view counts by about 3000%. And uh, some of that is attributed to to the, to the improvement in thumbnails. So yeah, I, I, long story short, I think, yeah, we were going to go for how to improve thumbnails by 3000% or something like that. But you thought it'd be too unbelievable and people wouldn't Yeah, even though <laughs> I had a slide that could prove it. Yeah, I think someone told me a really good quote once. It was like, there's, there's like fibs, there's liars and then there's analytics, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> but we won't, we won't talk about that because I do rely on analytics so much. So I'm not going to insult this audience. So the people listening to this are already kind of advanced. They know the basic stuff. So I brought Rob in to give us the, the juicy stuff. So we're not going to tell you why thumbnails are important. We're not going to tell you that kind of stuff. But what I did want to start off with is kind of if you had to order all of the different things in importance. So let's say, for example, metadata and calls to action and titles and descriptions. I know that me and you actually disagree quite a bit on some metadata points, but you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. But I would love to know, like on a scale of all of the different things that a channel manager has to do, where does thumbnails rank up there for like to grow a YouTube channel? How important are thumbnails? When I think of giving you one number, then I think about, hmm, but what if it's in this scenario or that scenario. So I think I'm going to give you three different answers here. And I will say, when you consider everything about YouTube, so we're talking about titles, metadata, thumbnails, and of, and content as well. I think we're probably talking like a six or a, you see, the content is king. So maybe you're talking like a four, a three or a four, but if you take content out of it, so we're just talking about that, fraction of a second that somebody's looking at your thumbnail and title 
and then how YouTube uses the metadata. So I guess anything other than content, then you're up to probably about a seven or an eight. What I will say is I think thumbnails are even more important when you are a smaller channel, when you're competing against well established channels for search or for suggested videos or like when you see maybe two thumbnails next to each other of similar quality and ones from a channel with a million subscribers versus one from a thousand subscribers, you tend to gravitate towards the larger channel just because of the credibility. And then some larger channels actually can get a little sloppy with their thumbnail creation. There are some channels who probably don't spend as much time on their thumbnails because they know their audience are always going to watch their content irrespective of a thumbnail and maybe they get a little complacent. So it's a bit of a fluid answer, but ultimately thumbnails are hugely important. Yeah, no, I love the the fluidity and I totally agree. It totally depends, but um, I just want to play devil's advocate. And I, this is one of the reasons that I started this podcast was so that I could talk nerdy YouTube stuff with people whose opinion I respect and, you know, maybe try to uh, ruffle a few feathers. But when you say content is king, yes, absolutely. Watch time is king. Unfortunately, sometimes poor quality content does get good watch time, but that's a a different discussion. But you could argue that without a good thumbnail, what is the point of great content? Because it never gets clicks, right? If you have a Star Wars movie uploaded in full and the thumbnail is just like a plain gray square, you know, people may never actually realize what it is. So you could argue that in certain circumstances that a thumbnail is even more important than, than great content. And and God knows many, many videos have got hundreds of millions, if not billions of views because of the thumbnail, you know, it, and you know, they, they're probably some unscrupulous people out there, you know, sticking an extra bit of cleavage or, uh, you know, uh, a shot from something that's not actually included in the video. And that's obviously nothing that we would ever endorse, but I think it just goes to prove the point on how powerful a great thumbnail can be to maybe make up for a a video that's not, you know, 10 out of 10 in terms of objective quality. But that's me going off on a tangent as well. Tom, I wouldn't disagree with you there, actually. I think um, going back to the, the, the talk, I think I argued that, Time is the most important currency on YouTube, uh, given that you as a creator want people to watch your content for as long as possible. But from the viewer's perspective, they perhaps want to get what they need as valuably as possible. And that includes the viewer giving you at maximum three or five seconds when they're looking at a thumbnail. So spending a huge amount of time on that three to five second attention span to get somebody to click on the video unlocks all of that other watch time. There's a little bit swings and roundabouts, isn't it? You could argue one way or the other, but you argued as a devil and I will <laughs> I will happily accept that. Yeah, well, obviously you want great content as well. Let's, let's, we, I think we can both agree on that. Probably the number one question that I get about thumbnails from clients from people on social, people that have read my book, people that come up to me at conferences about thumbnail specifically is, do I need to put my face in my thumbnails? I'd love to get your answer on this because I know that your face is absolutely plastered all over that vidIQ channel. And as handsome as you are, I'm not sure that's the only reason that you're on those thumbnails. So I'd love to hear your theory about 
faces on thumbnails in particular? So does a face need to be on a thumbnail? The answer is no. It depends. I would say there needs to be a hero on the thumbnail. Which is why you're on all of the vidIQ thumbnails. (laughs) (laughs) For a lot of creators, this will be a person because it might involve storytelling and you're trying to invoke an emotion. And one of the best ways to invoke an emotion is by having a reaction of a face on the thumbnail. But if you take this into the context of, let's say, tech, do you want a image of the person smiling and pointing at a phone, which is probably reduced in size because your face is taking up some of the thumbnail? Or do you want a hero image of the phone so somebody gets a clear look at it? I think I think MKBHD is probably a good example of that in a tech area. But then on the other hand, you've got Unbox Therapy, who he'll hold an image of He'll load up a device and they'll have some sort of quizzical um, look at it. So I think there's arguments for and against for uh, faces. And to be honest, on vidIQ, I actually test quite a lot. Sometimes I, I have a face on there. Sometimes I don't. And it seems to me, I've been doing a little bit of testing on this, but it seems to me that actually faces on the vidIQ channel are fractionally less successful. So I'm, I'm leaning a bit more towards either the, like the YouTube logo or like some sort of positivity of growth element. Another thing you sort of want to think about is what is the viewer's intent? Let's say somebody is wanting to learn how to do something, then what might be really valuable to have on the thumbnail is something that reflects what you're going to get or like how efficiently you can do this. So let's say it's a cooking channel. You can promote the idea of something that you are making meals that somebody can do in five minutes. So having a clock on the thumbnail to indicate the speed of efficiency of something. Or like if you're a student saying how much somebody can earn. I think a good example recently of this is probably um, in the US where uh, the COVID has been a, a huge thing like everywhere, but in particular in the US. And there's been this phenomenon of stimulus packages where I think checks have been sent out to a lot of people in the US. And so having maybe a dollar amount on the thumbnail is something that's just going to catch immediately somebody's attention when they're searching for something about how do I get my stimulus check and so on. So you've always got to put this idea of faces or heroes within the context of what the viewer is trying to get when they see your content. Yeah. Can So can we dispel this myth once and for all, really, that every thumbnail needs what I call like YouTube face? And you can't see this because I am not recording video here, but you know, it's open mouth, like eyes open wide, like I'm shocked, like a really overly stylized, shocked face. And I can understand using that in the right context when you're making a shocking video about a shocking topic, but going to get up on my soapbox here again. You know, there might be something like, valentine's day cupcake recipe and then there's a chef next to the cupcake and they've got this really shocked face and they're pointing at the cupcake and i'm like what are you shocked at you made that cupcake what is like is there a stick of dynamite in there instead of a candle like what are you shocked at i think that there's this been this knowledge or wisdom that's been passed down that you have to have this over the top stylistically shocked face uh, have you got any kind of face related tips <laughs> uh, so that people realize that they don't have to have 
that one expression. There is more to it. My question back to you, Tom, would be then, so if um, what would you do then? Would you completely remove uh, the face of the expression out of the thumbnail and, and include something else of value, like a closer shot of the cupcake that was being made? Or do you just want the chef with a really bland face that doesn't really strike any interest as somebody scrolling through? Because again, you've got to think about how much time you have in front of a potential viewer on the thumbnail. So I would argue that if you are going to have a face or whatever, whatever hero is, it's got to be striking in some way. Yes, I agree. Now, and that could be through emotion or it could be like you oversaturate the, the skin tones a little bit or you make the image sharper so it's easier to see. Yes, it does need to be expressive, but it doesn't need to be shocked all the time. Okay. So it could be like a quizzical look. It could yeah. be like sultry look. It could be whatever, you know, or it could be like the direction of the eyes could be on the cupcake. But why does it have to be like, you know, munches scream? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't always. It's uh, a shocked um, kind of expression that you're. Yeah, I've got, especially when it's got nothing shocking in the, and you know, me and you are part of a lot of Facebook groups and we see a lot of kind of, can you give me feedback on these thumbnails? And the amount of shocked faces I get is uh, shocking to me. One thing that I know you're really adamant on, and it's something that I agree in is like, if you are going to include a face, then it does need, there are kind of certain things you should do. So it should be framed quite close up. There's no point having it far away. And I know that eyes are really important. I always say to people, you want to be able to see the whites of somebody's eyes and you want to be able to see the, the kind of whites of their teeth. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I think that Jeremy certainly pushed me onto that where I would usually be zoomed out quite a bit. So my face would maybe cover 10% of a thumbnail and now it's more of a 25 to 30% because I wanted to have like some action in terms of my posture or my ar- hands and arms. And Jeremy pushed me away from that. And like I said, the whites of her eyes, it's that sort of credibility and connection thing that I think works when you have your face zoomed up. But again, there are exceptions to this. I think if you are trying to evoke a a sense of action or movement, especially fitness style channels, then yeah, I think you do need to zoom out and you need to have um, the image of a person doing the pose and that be very striking. I think what we're probably both agreeing here is whatever type of facial expression or pose or posture that you want, you do need to dial it up to 11 for that thumbnail. So that is striking, but as you say, not necessarily misleading, like it doesn't need to be shots, but it could be a little more quizzical or uh, more funny than how you may usually look. It's one of those weird things when you spend like an afternoon stood in front of a camera doing really, just taking images of yourself in stupid poses. So you've got this template of images that you can use in the future. Yeah. And, um, kind of staying on the, I know you said like you mentioned the word like striking and saturation. These are the kinds of, uh, effects and stuff that I just can't do. But for people that are good with photo manipulation software, whether that be Photoshop or their weapon of choice, what are some of the more technical image manipulation tips that you can give us? Like what are the ways that you can make your standard image pop a bit more than the standard image? For example, I know there's a lot of people do like a white outline outside of 
you know their main images and stuff like that or they they play with the color levels what are, what are some of those kind of more photo manipulation kind of techniques that you can give us so the key to all of this is the reason you might do these things that oversaturate or oversharpen or make the image look a little weird is because when you design the thumbnail on your computer, you may be doing it on a 24-inch widescreen, but that's the only person who's actually going to see the thumbnail of that size. Everybody else on YouTube is going to see your thumbnail at 2 5% of its size, and so it needs to stand out against other thumbnails. So when we talk about certain things that may help, two of the, two of the things that I always do is I oversharpen my image if it's a, a first, because it brings out, I know it sounds daft, but it brings out the, the wrinkles a little bit. It brings out the headlines. It brings out like a bit of stubble. Uh, so And it just looks a lot sharper. And again, the whites of the eyes tend to get a little brighter. But when you shrink all of that down, you don't necessarily notice the detail, but you do notice the, the sharpness of the image. And then also upping the saturation of the colors by about 10 or 20% gives certain colors like blues and greens, reds, yellows, vibrancy. So they, they have some pop or they punch a little bit more. And again, it says you're scrolling through these search results or suggested videos. You'll notice that when thumbnails have been treated in this way, they do stand out a, a little bit more against the competition. As you said, uh, you can use a stroke effects around the person. So that's when you put in like a white outline or another thing might be a drop shadow. And what you're doing there is you're trying to create a bit of depth in the thumbnail. So that's a contrast between the background and the foreground. Again, what you'll find with good thumbnails is that your eyes are drawn to certain things, whether it is the person doing a striking pose or a, a really colorful explosion on screen, whereas there'll be other parts of the thumbnail which are a little softer and quieter or darker so your eye is drawn to a certain thing and this may be done through arrows at a point so that's like a really common trick that a lot of people use but they use an arrow to point to a certain thing to draw your attention to it and so there's lots of little tricks there and I guess hopefully you can pick up some of them I'm talking about oversharpen oversaturate you can do a YouTube search on any of these and it'll tell you how to do it on certain Photoshop or whatever um, picture editing program you use yeah, and we'll link to the vidIQ YouTube channel and specifically Rob's playlist for YouTube thumbnails. You can find all of that and a how-to guide on how to make awesome thumbnails by Rob by visiting prochannelmanager.com forward slash episode six. That's episode and the number six. No dashes, no hyphens. Uh, you mentioned Photoshop. I'm assuming that's what you're using. I do own a license for Photoshop, but I'm an absolute pleb when it comes to doing it. I actually had someone make me a podcast artwork template the other day and I said, can you please make it? So all I need to do is just kind of drop a photo of my guest in and don't have to do anything else. And she done a, an amazing job and she said, yep, yeah, it's easy. You just need to change this. And I said, okay, you've made it foolproof, but can you just send me a screen recording of how you do it? <laughs> I'm so bad at Photoshop. So is Photoshop what you're using? Is it what you recommend? And is there any alternatives for people that either don't have the budget or are just a little bit less technically inclined? People like me. It's a good question because I find Photoshop still really intimidating. And I would say I'm 
an adequate user of it, but there's so much that I don't understand about it and I probably find it quite intimidating. Again, what I've learned is probably through YouTube videos and Jeremy, we keep going back to Jeremy a little bit, but he showed me how to do quite a few things, but obviously not everybody has a, a Photoshop expert who can tutor them on how to do certain things. So there is, oh, what's Canva is a good place to start because that is free. And I believe they do include YouTube templates where you can just uh, drop in images or change the text. Place it, I think, is another one, which is similar to Canva in that it does have YouTube templates. And I think that is a paid service. But you can also go go down the route that you um, went down, Tom, which is to outsource. Like if you just accept that you're never going to be a great thumbnail creator, that's fine. Just be aware that thumbnails are super important and you do want to dedicate some time to it, uh, but get somebody else who's good at it to do it or create a template like you, you've done. So you're at least not making really poor uh, thumbnails. Yeah, and there are there are certain companies and services that specialize just in YouTube thumbnails. Uh, you know, there's like Justin over at Custom Thumbnails. Uh, there's my good friend Emre over at We Fantastic. There's my good friend Will, who's actually just changed the name of his company. But I'll link to all of these in the show notes anyway, and you'll be able to to use those. And then there's other things like maybe not Fiverr. You know, that's probably on the lower end of the scale. But maybe something like Upwork, which is like a freelancer's uh, marketplace. And then also if you're in a lot of the Facebook groups and communities like me and Rob are in, often if you just drop like, who knows anyone that does custom thumbnails, there'll be, you know, a good few people that will put their hand up and will be willing to do that as, as like a freelancer. Uh, and yes, it probably is worth getting, if you're like me, it's definitely worth getting someone else to do it as long as you can guide them as to what you want, because even though they may be good at the technical tools, of photo manipulation, they might not be able to understand the kind of psychological resonance of how you want the image to come. And also text. I know text is really important. In fact, it's probably my number one pet peeve when it comes to thumbnails is text on thumbnails. And almost exclusively... Actually, what's the opposite of exclusive? <laughs> the opposite of exclusive. Totally, every single YouTube channel that I consult with has a problem where they are repeating the text exactly of their title in their thumbnail. Rob, please tell me you agree with me that that is a cardinal sin. That certainly is a cardinal sin because you're just wasting your title there. Um, but I'm going to throw this back to you a little bit because in terms of text... I think we're going to be talking about this for quite a while. But in terms of text, I generally argue that less text is more and often no text is best. However, I think there are exceptions when you are a heavily searched based YouTube channel, when people are just trying to get an answer to a question. And I think sometimes having text, which just tells you exactly what you're going to get from this video can be an advantage beyond when you're trying to be a little more nuanced and trying to create that emotional feeling. Because uh, I, I do see many channels where it is something very simple, like how to get a thousand subscribers. And sometimes that works better than when you're trying to put in a lot of thought and trying to tell that in a, a unique way. So I just wonder what your thoughts are on that, depending on like the, the channel, whether it is better to use s simpler thumbnails with a block of text on there. 
Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I think, you know, I worked for media companies, working with like TV shows, movies, and we didn't put any text on thumbnails at all because, you know, you can take a screenshot from Doctor Who and yep, it, yep. A, a picture's worth a thousand words. I worked on food channels. Food porn worked amazingly well. I worked on Top Gear channel. Car porn works incredibly well. I totally agree. I think when you're working, especially, I don't know how better to say this, but in a quite a boring niche, let's say you're working in like, you know, you're teaching people how to use Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, coding. We 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 audit channels a lot and we we sometimes struggle of how to tell a better thumbnail than, than just like exactly what you're going to get out of this coding tutorial. Yes, but I would still argue that you don't want it to be 100% identical. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. My argument is always... Um, it should be more SEO, especially for like a search-based channel, more SEO friendly in the actual title of the video. And then it should be a little bit more punchier on the thumbnail, shorter, punchier. And again, that's not always going to be possible with a really kind of like basic, like how-to channel. But I think you, you got it really right early when you said like, put a clock on there. So it might be like, you know, pivot tables in less than four minutes. Yeah. But that might not be the title of the video. The title of the video might be how to create a pivot table in Excel 2010. But the thumbnail might say pivot tables in under a minute, something like that. Mm. Yeah. Totally agree with you that less is more. You know, I try to never have more than like four or five words, less if possible. And a great lesson that I got from a former client of mine, actually, when he was talking to me about his thumbnail process, and that was a good friend of the show, Antonio Centeno from Real Men, Real Style. You can listen to my interview with him back in episode four. And he said that if you're going to put text on a thumbnail, you really want to try and invoke some kind of emotional reaction. So whether that's piquing someone's curiosity or trying to instill some fear into someone like, don't make these mistakes, something like that. And I've always tried my best to think, how is this going to invoke some kind of emotional or psychological reaction? But yes, that is the hardest for those kind of how-to channels. But then you may think, well, the psychological aspect there is the fact that you want them to do it in under five minutes because... You know, they want to want to be doing this stuff quickly. So yes, text is not easy, but I definitely agree with you. I would definitely not even have text unless you absolutely had to. If you can tell it visually, I would definitely say that. My advice to anybody who's really wrestling with um, text and how much they should have on their screen is go to the channel and click on the video tab. And then you'll see all of your thumbnails, probably about 20, 30 on screen. And then just scroll down until all you can see is thumbnails. And if you're looking at that set of thumbnails and your eye's not necessarily drawn to anything because it's just a wall of text, then that tells you that you're putting too much text on your thumbnails. What it should be on thumbnails is that your eye should be able to identify something within a second. And it's usually not text. As you said, Tom, text is usually something that complements the imagery that's going on in a thumbnail. A recent example when I tried this is, the title was of the video was, why is my channel failing? And then it had an image of me, I think with a quizzical look pointing to a graph that, that was going down. 
And it had one simple piece of text, which was algorithm question mark. Because that's what a lot of people think when their channel isn't doing well, they hold the algorithm responsible. I think that's what they want to think. Yeah. For sure. Because they don't want to blame themselves. For sure. Yes. So, so thinking, ah, I'm going to get, I'm going to get the answer I want in this video. It's going to tell me that the algorithm is what's causing it. And obviously once you get into a video, there's a lot more in, in, in there. Um, but that was an example of one piece of text complementing the title and the, the, like the thumbnail and the title working in unison, which is, I think is always the best, uh, path forward for your, um, content. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the biggest tips in, in the book that I wrote back in the day is that, you know, the text and the the thumbnail really need to set up the video. And I think one of the best reasons for, for doing that is that so as soon as you click on that video, the person can get straight into it without giving you a five minute long winded yeah, yeah, explanation of what's coming up. Because you've already, you know, if the thumbnail is of a beautiful cupcake and the title of the video is how to make delicious strawberry cupcake like you don't need the five minute intro explaining that today we're going to do the five minute cupcake because you've already done that for sure and then in that case i think the thumbnail could be again i'm just thinking of thumbnail general thumbnail concepts when i think of what the thumbnail could be there it could it's the ingredients on one side of the thumbnail and then the final products on the other so like you're showing the the way you're going to begin and then the final the final payoff and trade-off. But you've got to watch the video to work out how you get from the starting blocks to this finished article. Yeah, I think that was one of the, the really great points about your talk, I think, was that you said kind of show the results in the thumbnail if you can. For, certainly for educational content, yeah. People want to know what they're getting into before they click. So if I know that I can, I think the example I use was hairstyles. If I'm going to be able to uh, do a hairstyle like this by the end of a video from watching this thumbnail for two or three seconds, then at least I'm going to click on it and then see what you've got to offer me. Yeah, for sure. One of the, the questions that I'm really interested in, and I, I've kind of looked into this for years because working on websites and, you know, sales pages and trying to get people to opt in to offers and whatnot is color. And, you know, there are a lot of different psychological anchors between colors, you know, is red danger, is blue trust, that kind of stuff. Are there any studies? Because I know that you guys have got access to crazy amounts of data over there at vidIQ from your tool and stuff. Are there any kind of colors that just I know it's hard to say across the board, but are there any colors that statistically get a better click-through rate? I think from what I remember, the data that we got when we, I think we looked at about 50,000 channels and the, the dominant color of thumbnails. And this was a surprise to me. It was whites and blacks, which sounds counterintuitive because especially when you have a YouTube layout, which is either white or dark for dark mode, you might think that the thumbnails blend in to the the actual layout of YouTube, but it may be that it's actually the white and black dominant colors stand out versus what colors are typically used by other video creators. But I think you're right in saying that it really does depend on the topic that you're in. If you look at the best creators in that area, they probably have some sort of branding or coloring on their channels. And 
what it may be a good idea to do is, and you probably want to test this, is but either use similar colors uh, so that you're kind of getting that association potentially in the suggested videos, or you do something that's completely opposite. One of the people in our space, Brian G. Johnson, he is always practicing with really wild thumbnail colors. Obviously, we have blues for a company branding, and the other company who shall not be named use red quite a lot. But then Brian uses uh, like these garish greens and really bright yellows. And when you're, you're on the search pages, you can't avoid them. They really do stand out. But I think this very much is a topic-based answer in that you should be using colors which work in your area or are something that really stands out get versus a competition. Yeah, also it might appeal to your audience. You might, for example, have an older audience or you might have a much younger audience, you know, so on kids' thumbnails, you're yeah. going to see much brighter colors. And on that Excel tutorial, you, you might see something a little bit more uh, muted. There's a, there's a couple of things I want to touch on. One thing we haven't really talked about is that I think the difference between the kind of pro creator not a pro creator, a pro creator <laughs> and the amateur is that an amateur will often just use like, and I'm, I say this because I'm one of them when I used to make videos with me in them is I would just take an image, even if I was posing, I would take an image and overlay some text on it. Whereas the kind of more professional end will be like a image kind of composed, the background removed, added onto a, like a single block color yeah, yeah. Uh, background. Is that significantly more successful in terms of click-through rate, having that kind of manipulated kind of block color contrast in background as opposed to like me against my whiteboard with something kind of written on the whiteboard? I think you can have no more than two or three dominant colors in a thumbnail. And once you have more, then again, I encourage you to go back to your the video tab on your channel and have a look at the thumbnails. And if it's just a mess of muddy colors and your eyes not being drawn to anything, then there's too much going on in the thumbnails. So that's why I think a lot of us do do this thing where we cut ourselves out of whatever background we're using and we add either like a single gradient color or like a single block color, which is a then going to stand out. You've got that contrast between the foreground and the background again, because the skin tone is going to contrast maybe with a red or a blue background or whatever you decide to use. So th that is another failing, I think, of, of some creators who actually try and do, they do too much. They spend a lot of time on the thumbnails, but they make it so intricate that there's too many elements to it. And you're spending, as a potential viewer, 10, 20 seconds trying to decipher what's in a thumbnail, whereas really you only need one real theme of a thumbnail. A really good example of this might be a listicle channels where let's say it's the top 10 movies of 2020 and somebody tries to fit on the movie poster of every single video, every single movie on the thumbnail, whereas it might be better to just include one, which might be a little bit surprising in that list because that's going to create a bit of intrigue for the person to click on it and then see, oh, what other videos were in this list? I've got to find out rather than you giving away everything uh, on the thumbnail. Yeah, I think that's really important as well, because you've got to remember that I 
I don't know what the stat updated stats are, but the last time I heard an official stat from YouTube was that in the UK, I think 75% of views come on mobile or tablets. So that's going to be usually at such a reduced size yeah. that you can't have a, an overly complex thumbnail for sure because you're just physically not going to be able to decipher what the different parts of that what that image are. I do want to move on to analytics in a second, but I've got one thing that I'm absolutely dying to ask you about thumbnails. Back when I worked at a large media company, we did our own testing to see what would happen if we added our logo or the logo of the TV show in question to our thumbnails. Because previously we were just doing pure images, but we want, you know, with many media companies, they're thinking about attribution to the brand. They want to stand out as official. They want it to be a little bit more composed, a little bit more considered. Mm. Have you got any statistics about people that put their, you know, channel logo, company logo on their thumbnails or not, and how that that affects click through rates? Because I've I have done some testing, but obviously I don't have the same access to the the amounts of data that you have. So I'd love to know if you do have some data around that. I think I'm going to have to disappoint you here and say that we don't have any data necessarily on that. We do it, as you say, because it adds credibility to our content. And I I guess maybe does it depend on the size of the um, the channel? Like you say, you used to work for a large media corporation. And I was it so large in it that people could immediately identify the content? I guess yes. was the content more <laughs> <Yeah>. important? <laughs> it was bigger. one of the most famous TV shows in the world. So, exactly. Yeah. So was was that show more important than who produced it in that sense? So you didn't need the logo. Well, it was actually, it was the logo of the show, not the company. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. But basically we were just trying to put an official stamp on it. And what we actually found out and we actually totally through YouTube because they were very closely watching our experiment and it was kind of scientifically validated. We had one of our business analysts working on it is that when we added the official logo, the compared to a control group that didn't have the logo, actually we didn't have click through rate data then, but views went down. It, It would be different if we did it now, but views went down on that control group when we changed those thumbnails. And we, our kind of thought was, and it would be probably specific to that niche, is that fans didn't care where that clip, and it was kind of clips from the TV show, they didn't care where the clip came from, whether it was official or not. They just had an affinity for that moment of the TV show. And they didn't care whether it was official or, or whether Joe Bloggs had uploaded it or not. They just wanted to see that moment from that historic TV show. You know, you do see it on things like the, you know, the the Jimmy Fallon show or the, you know, the Late Late Show or whatever it may be, Conan. They've got their logos. But I'd, I'd just be interested to to see that kind of test on a, on a wider scale. But maybe that's something you can look into in the future. Consider yourself task set for your next VidCon talk, please, Rob. I think what I will say is that if you have thumbnails that are so distinctive, they don't require a logo, so to speak. I, I guess a good example of this would be Philip DeFranco show, where yeah. you know it's a, is one of his videos purely by his thumbnail, which is all, which is pretty much always the same with the YouTube logo in the background. That's not necessarily connected with him, but it's always 
him in some pose along with two other protagonists from that video. And, and I, he I, is I, the brand, right? Yeah. Peter Franco is the brand. Yeah. I, I think maybe we're, if somebody's so good at making thumbnails that even if they were in the thumbnail, I think certain gaming channels may do this where even though there isn't any official logo in there, like the style of the thumbnail or the certain coloring or something that's always synonymous with that creator will create that brand awareness. Now, all of that being said, I think this brings us onto a good point of what you should be doing with all of this is testing. And the way to do that is through the YouTube analytics. And there's a really cool tool that is actually hidden away a little bit in the new analytics, but it's really valuable for this type of testing. So I'll, I'll talk about it now while it's in my head. Um, what you can do is if you go to the analytics screen and then you click on see more or advanced mode, it takes you to a full screen of analytics and you'll see your channel name in the top left-hand corner. And if you click on your channel name, that actually brings up a pop-up, which a lot of people don't actually realize. And one of those tabs in that pop-up is called groups. And that's where you can set up a list of videos and do testing of whatever kind. So it might be that you set up a list of videos that have a logo in the thumbnail and another list of videos that don't have a logo in the thumbnail. And then you could test there and get all the results you wanted from those YouTube groups. Rob, you're officially my favorite guest ever because one, you segued into analytics for me, which I was going to do anyway. That was on purpose. I knew you we were going to that. <laughs> and secondly, you've just done a great advert for my upcoming course on YouTube analytics groups, which is one of my favorite features and probably the most underutilized features of YouTube analytics. And of course, you can find all about that and pre-register at ProChannelManager.com. So thank you for that, Rob. <laughs> I'll give you that five pound note later. Um, so yeah, let's stick with analytics. Click-through rate, you know, it's only relatively recently that we've got click-through rate in analytics. Yeah, you know, we were desperate for this information before that. So we don't need to explain what it is, but can you go a bit deeply on like how you use it? And... Uh, to be fair, actually, I think it is actually worth picking apart a bit because it's not as straightforward as it seems, is it? Because uh, I'm not sure how much you've looked into it, but click-through rate doesn't account for like all places that a YouTube video will pop up, for example, on embeds. And it also kind of gets skewed in a way by the time at which you check the click-through rate. So for example, if you check it in the first 24 hours, it's going to be very different than if you check it a week later because it's being shown primarily to subscribers in that early mm. time and therefore much more likely to get clicked. So yeah, if you could just expand on how you look at click-through rate, how you use it to inform decisions, I think that'd be really useful. So click-through rate, let's start with some numbers that YouTube throws out, which really frustrate me because what creators love to do is have an analytic and then say, well, what is a good number for this? And YouTube say that um, typical click-through rate is between 2 and 10%, which is quite broad, first of all. And when people they get think they're doing really badly because they have 3% click-through rate, and then the opposite might be people think they're doing really well because they have 13% click-through rate. But what they don't realize is that this uh, sample size can really affect this, whereby a small channel could have a really high click-through rate, but their content's not being shared enough to normalize this number. So what I would say, first of all, in terms of click-through rate, in terms of what is your click-through rate, 
And whatever it is, whether it be 3%, 6%, 9% or whatever, a benchmark it over a certain number of videos and then aim to improve it by testing your thumbnails. And that's what we did at vidIQ. Our thumb, when we first got access to these numbers, our click-through rate was, I think, like 2.5%. So we knew we needed to improve that. And then we had this barometer and we started testing the, the click-through rate. And over time, it, I think it went from 2.5% to, I think it's around 6 or 7% now. So it still doesn't sound very high compared to what YouTube recommendations are. But in that time, our view counts have gone from like 200,000 a month to two and a half million a month. So we've increased our view count as we went back to those um, percentages, Tom, at the very top. We've increased it by about a thousand percent by not worrying too much about what YouTube says, but where we were and where we wanted to get to. Now, yeah, you're right in terms of uh, click-through rate. Somebody has to see more than 50% of the thumbnail for it to count as an impression and it only counts in certain areas. And I'm trying to remember what they are. I think it's on browse features. I think it's on suggested videos. I think it's on search as well. I can't remember if it includes notifications or not. We'll make the full list available on the article we produced from this. So yeah, don't worry if you can't find it. But yeah, I, I think it highlights the point that it's not as straightforward as you would think. Here's what I recommend you do. So on the reach tab, you click on the impressions to click through eight box, and then you click on see more. And this is a really important part. You click on traffic sources once you're into the big graph of things. And then that will then tell you exactly your click through rate for different types of traffic sources. So now I can see on here that it's counting click through rate for YouTube search, browse features, playlists, playlist pages, channel pages suggested videos, but it doesn't count it for things such as external, as we briefly mentioned, notifications, end screens, video cards. So you need to look, dive into your analytics and know exactly what's going to count as these impressions to click through rate. The other really important thing as well is that you may get really good click through rate for say YouTube search, which for us is near 10%, but the average view duration is a lot less. So for us, impressions to click through rate is near 10%, but the view duration is 1 minute 45. But then for suggested videos, and this shows you how important suggested videos are uh, for your content, the view duration is over four minutes. So it's twice as much watch time, but the impressions to click through rate is 2.5%. So maybe that's telling me that while our thumbnails may be really effective for search, what do we need to make those thumbnails look better when you're scrolling down a list of similar videos while somebody else is watching your content? Like, is it something we need to change with the text or the thumbnails or the, or the, the colors or having people on, on front? We could do a lot of different testing that way. That is so interesting. And I must say that that's kind of like a new tip to me. And again, one of the reasons I started this podcast was to pick the brains of the smartest people in the industry so I could be inspired by them, not steal their ideas. So yeah, Rob, that's an amazing tip. Should I expect to see this in the course as well then? Is this going to be an addendum? Well, to no, class? I'm going to get, what you don't understand is that you're going to be doing a guest class for me on fun there. Oh, awesome. Another academy to look after. Yeah, I, actually, I think I might be doing a guest class inside the VidIQ Academy. So 
big plug here for the uh, vidIQ Academy, which is also absolutely excellent. One last question, very, very quickly, before we jump onto something that I like to do for my guest. There's something called Google Cloud Vision, which is like a super advanced ninja tip. Can you sum that up really, really quickly? What is it and how can it help? So uh, I'm hopefully, Tom, you'll leave a link to this. Uh, what you can basically do is upload a thumbnail to this Cloud Vision API and then it breaks down your thumbnail in terms of, it'll even try and work out what emotion your face has if you put a face on there. It'll try and identify objects. It'll break down the dominant colors on the thumbnail. It will identify text. And I think also what it really importantly does, especially in terms of whether your content may be restricted or not on YouTube, is it tries to determine how friendly that is in terms of whether it's racy or there might be something that needs to be restricted in some way, whether it's gory or graphic or or in some respects, not appropriate for all audiences. As far as I'm aware, but Tom, you can correct me on this. We don't know if YouTube uses this, but since YouTube is a part of Google, we assume that YouTube is probably having these thumbnails rated in some way. And also, I think Google is able to look at every individual frame on a video and do like the, give it the same treatment. I know that Mr. Beast has done some conversations about this where if you're standing in front of a certain shopping outlet or like, I think it was Walmart or a food outlet, it was able to determine that maybe the, the content was more about food, like he was doing some sort of food challenge. So there's some really crazy algorithms going on here. And it might be good just to throw some of your thumbnails into that service, along with some bits, maybe like the best thumbnails in your topic and comparing how those thumbnails compare in terms of what YouTube thinks or Google thinks your thumbnail is about. Yeah, I'm not sure if they use it exactly, but I know for sure that they're reading thumbnails and watching out for like graphic things in terms of like horror or gore or kind of um, like things that are like raunchy or racy or however they, they want to do it. So yeah, it's a really interesting tool. I think the first time I heard about it was uh, maybe through Daryl Eves and yeah. you know yeah. he, he's always on the cutting edge of things like that and just incredible how smart YouTube is. So yeah, incredible tips there, Rob. Before you go, I have got my patented fast five questions. Nothing to do with thumbnails. You'll be glad to know. You can stop thinking about thumbnails for five minutes. Yeah, I'm just going to shoot five questions at you, quick fire, just short answers. Just mm -hmm. let me know the first thing that comes into your head. Are you ready? Okay, give it to me. Rob Wilson, your fast five if you could only ever watch one YouTube channel ever again, what would it be? Can't be your own YouTube channel. MKBHD. There we go. Marcus Brownlee. Pretty cool. Uh, what one feature of YouTube from the past would you bring back? I would like access to the classic studio. Uh, there's, there's still some analytics and things that I prefer in there. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with that for one second. If you could add one feature to YouTube, what would it be? I think it has to be what everybody wants right now, which is AB thumbnail testing, proper AB thumbnail testing. Yeah, well, there was a there was a beta for it years ago. One of my channels was on it. It went away. I've heard rumors it will be back. I don't know if you've heard any of the same. Fingers crossed that will come soon. Yeah, we need true AB. I've just heard it's been rumored for years and there must be some technical reason why it's not a good idea to do it, but... It must be pretty reasonable, I'm sure, but I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure as well. It's got his, his advantages. Um, what one piece of advice would you give to a YouTube channel manager starting today? 
Um, okay, I need to ask you a question here. What do you mean by YouTube channel manager? Is this somebody who's not really creating content? Um, so it could be like someone like you who is a creator slash managing the channel or someone like me who might just manage other people's YouTube channels. Consider your community and your audience. You, the YouTube channel is not for you. It's for your audience first. Absolutely agree with that. And number five, if YouTube was a person, what would you say to them if you met them at the Christmas party? How are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why that came into my head. <laughs> so smooth. So smooth. Like James Bond, if he was from Huddersfield. I hope. How are you doing? <laughs> You'd be friendly. You'd be friendly. Put it that way. Uh, what, what, what? I'm trying to think of something more serious now. I'd say, I, I, what I would actually say is, um, despite a lot of people hate you for whatever reason, but I think YouTube is ultimately a platform for good and it's changed my life. I, I was a very frustrated creative before I discovered video making in YouTube in particular. And you've positively changed a lot of people's lives over the last decade and a half and long may that continue. Very Christmas spirit of you there. And <laughs> absolute final question. I can't go about saying, asking this. Who out there on YouTube is making great thumbnails as well as you that we can be learning from? Ooh, Peter McKinnon. Peter McKinnon. I think we all know Peter, but we should be looking at his thumbnails a little bit closer. Rob, I cannot thank you enough. Like, absolutely, you are the go-to resource for YouTube thumbnails in my eyes. I always have and will continue to send people to you and to the vidIQ channel. We'll link to that in the show notes. Remember, you can find that prochannelmanager.com forward slash episode six. Episode, the number six, no dashes, no hyphens. Rob, where can people hear more from you? Pretty simple. I gave up all of my uh, social media stuff to be the vidIQ man. So you can find me on the vidIQ channel, on Twitter, Instagram, just search for vidIQ and you will find both myself and Jasper, my dog, whenever I have a chance to get him on some stuff. And all of the memes that uh, Rob is daily created inside of. He's the meme king. For some reason, I'm not sure if you bring it on yourself, Rob, but... um I just can't help but see Robin memes day in, day out. And they are pretty incredible. So check out some of those vidIQ Photoshop battles. Rob, the king of YouTube creator memes. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Rob. That was incredible. I always learn something from Rob every time we speak. He's in the front lines every single day. That's why I really, really respect his opinion. And if you look at his thumbnails on the vidIQ channel, they are absolutely picture perfect. Remember, you can learn all of these actionable steps to make your thumbnails pop even more, get better click-through rates by visiting prochannelmanager.com forward slash episode six. That's the word episode number six, no dashes, no hyphens. A big thank you again to vidIQ, Rob from vidIQ, of course. And remember, you can get a free trial of one of their awesome paid plans by visiting prochannelmanager.com forward slash vidIQ. Also, if you found this useful, 
please do not forget to check out our other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. Also, make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a new episode that comes out every single fortnight. I'd really appreciate if you did find it valuable to leave us a review or a rating in Apple Podcasts, because that is going to help the next generation of pro channel managers find this podcast. If you'd like to know more about our courses and our amazing community that just hit the magical number of 145 million combined subscribers, you can do so by visiting prochannelmanager.com where you'll find out all about our community, our courses and everything else that we have going on. Thank you so much, Rob, again. Thank you for listening to this. And until next time, keep uploading. Laters. Thanks for listening to the Pro Channel Manager Podcast. Happy uploading. And remember, next time you go to publish a video, ask yourself, what would Tom think?